Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Uh, my name is Ted Bromond. I'm a senior research fellow in Anglo-American relations in the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom here at the Heritage Foundation. Our guest today is one of the most sophisticated, interesting, and historically informed commentators on and analysts of both conservative and progressive foreign policy. For over a decade, he's been explicating the historical and policy logic behind what the U.S. does abroad. And in that time, he's regularly been a welcome guest here at the Heritage Foundation. In an article last month for National Review, our guest made the following summary comment about President Trump's foreign policy. Quote, as the GOP has incorporated more working class voters and moved in a more culturally conservative populist direction, part of a long-term trend predating President Trump, its foreign policy stance is inevitably affected. A more blue-collar Republican Party will tend to be more protectionist on trade and less interventionist in foreign affairs, or at least it will contain powerful constituencies making those arguments. But the beating heart of today's GOP, many miles outside the Beltway, is by no means pacifist. Its mantra is held in the words of the black-coiled snake on the yellow Gadsden flag, don't tread on me. Any foreign enemy who persists in testing that reptile will find there is a limit. The snake eventually bites. What the Trump phenomenon has clar clarified, above all, is that no version of internationalism can be sustained in the absence of an underlying nation-state felt by its own citizens to be prosperous, sovereign, and secure. And if the nation's leaders ever forget that again, the voters will be sure to remind them. In this sense, there really is no such thing as Trumpism. There is only America. In other words, in spite of all the furor surrounding it, President Trump's foreign policy has an internal coherence, just as President Obama's did. In this sense, there may be a Trump doctrine, just as there was an Obama doctrine, though the two doctrines are, of course, not the same thing. Moreover, President Trump's foreign policy does not stand on its own. It is part of a foreign policy tradition, one that will outlive its presidency. Hence the title of our guest's provocative remarks today. Welcome him here back to the Heritage Foundation to explicate and expand on his provocative thoughts. Colin Duick is a professor in the Shar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University and a non-resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He studied politics at Princeton University and international relations at Oxford under a Rhodes Scholarship. He has worked as a foreign policy advisor on several Republican presidential campaigns and acted as a consultant for the Department of State, the Department of Defense, and the National Security Council. He has published before the book that he'll be discussing today, three books on American foreign and national security policies, The Obama Doctrine, American Grand Strategy Today from Oxford in 2015, Hardline, the Republican Party and U.S. Foreign Policy Since World War II from Princeton in 2010, and Reluctant Crusaders, Power, Culture, and Change in American Grand Strategy from Princeton in 2006. His latest book, Age of Iron on Conservative Nationalism, forms the basis of his remarks today. Please join me in welcoming Professor Colin Duick back to the Heritage Foundation for his remarks on the Trump Doctrine, the future of U.S. foreign policy. Colin. Thanks, Ted. Thanks for that very kind introduction. Um, so first of all, I should say that the title of the talk really should have a question mark after it, because I think even people who are sympathetic wonder, is there a Trump Doctrine? What is the Trump Doctrine, right? So. Um, Consider the talk to be Trump doctrine, question mark, and that's what we'll discuss today. Um, more on that in a moment. I want to put this in a little historical context. In a way, that's really the point of the book. There has been a tremendous attention on both sides of the Atlantic to the fact that this rise of populist nationalism on the right has been unexpected and striking over the last few years. It is one of the most remarkable trends of our time. And some observers believe that this is uh, 
reminiscent of the 1930s, which obviously would be very disturbing if that were true. Critics say that the Trump administration is undermining what they call rules-based liberal order. Um, but I do believe that critics, for the most part, misunderstand a tradition of American nationalism and also the foreign policy of the Trump administration. I argue that conservative American nationalism is the oldest democratic U.S. foreign policy tradition in existence. And that's a central claim of my book. American nationalism properly understood as a form of civic nationalism. That means there's always been a kind of American creed or civic religion with classical liberal elements, including the rule of law, individual freedom, equality of right, enterprise, and limited government. This is what 19th century Marxists meant when they spoke of American exceptionalism, coining the phrase. And they found it exceptionally frustrating since it made it harder to promote socialism within the United States. In terms of its foreign policy implications, the leaders of the American Revolution hoped that that revolution would encourage the spread of what they called Republican forms of government and the creation of a new international system characterized by peaceful commercial exchange, the rule of law, individual liberty, and human progress. At the same time, however, those same early Americans cherished the preservation of US national sovereignty, and for that matter, held to a policy of disengagement from European alliances a policy best laid out formally by George Washington in his 1796 farewell address. Early American statesmen saw no contradiction between expanding the sphere of Republican governments and preserving US national sovereignty. That was the mainstream American tradition throughout the 19th century. Nor did those leaders have the capacity to authorize massive US military interventions on behalf of liberal ideals over a global scale or any interest in doing so. So the country's policy therefore remained predominantly nationalist rather than globalist well into the 20th century. The real break, I suggest, came with Woodrow Wilson and the American response to the First World War. Wilson explained and conceived of America's entry into that war, not only as an effort to defeat Germany, but to lead to the creation of a transformed world order characterized by democratic governments, national self-determination, collective security, freedom of the seas, multilateralism, and general disarmament. A new League of Nations was to be the capstone of this new order, containing at its heart what Wilson envisioned as a virtual guarantee of territorial integrity and political independence of every member state. Wilson's great innovation was not simply to argue that American liberal values, as he viewed them, needed to be vindicated by force on the European continent, although, although this was dramatic enough in itself. Nor was it simply to tie his League project to the achievement of progressive reforms inside the United States, although he did that as well. His innovation was also to say that only through binding, universal, and formal multilateral commitments on the part of the United States could liberal values be vindicated worldwide. Obviously, the US Senate refused to pass the Versailles Treaty, but Wilson laid down a marker ideologically that would not disappear. In fact, the Wilsonian vision became a central animating force in US foreign policy over the next 100 years. Republicans, for their part, had grave concerns about Wilson's foreign policy vision from the very beginning, along with its domestic implications. But they disagreed over how far exactly to correct or resist it. I suggest there were three main Republican or conservative foreign policy options or groupings visible already during the great debates surrounding Wilson's policies during World War I. First, non-intervention. Republicans like Senator LaFollette of Wisconsin argued for peace, disarmament, non-intervention, and strict disengagement in response to the war. Second, a kind of hawkish or hardline unilateralism. Republicans like Senator Bora of Idaho argued for robust national defenses and firm responses to any intrusion on the nation's honor while attempting to remain apart from old world alliances and hostilities. And then third, a sort of conservative internationalism, with a leading figure being Republican Senator Henry Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts, who argued for vigorous responses to German aggression early on, and a post-war alliance with France and Great Britain, without making any sweeping commitments to worldwide collective security. The story I tell in this book, a series of chapters, is that the interaction between these three factions or schools of thought 
has really determined the history of conservative Republican foreign policy approaches, whether in or out of office. As of 1918-19, the most common foreign policy view among Republicans was actually that of Lodge in favor of a Western alliance. But the outcome of the League debate was essentially a victory for GOP non-interventionists. That victory informed Republican foreign policy approaches throughout the 1920s and into the opening years of World War II. Then conservatives again divided, with one side arguing for US aid to Great Britain against Nazi Germany, and the other side opposing it. The Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor settled that debate in favor of the Republican Party's internationalists. The rise of the Soviet Union after World War II only reinforced the new predominance of conservative internationalists within the GOP. Strict non-interventionists were marginalized. But in reality, many hardline conservatives had to be dragged reluctantly into a set of US post-war commitments overseas. And the only thing that ensured their support was a fierce anti-communism. No subsequent Republican president was able to entirely ignore the continued force of hardline nationalism at the grassroots level within the Republican Party. And most achieved political and policy success precisely by incorporating aspects of it into their overall approach. The specific manner in which they did so varied a great deal from one president to the next. Those who failed to strike effective balances on this score, such as Senator Barry Goldwater, tended to lose elections, whatever their other virtues. In the immediate aftermath of the Cold War, the most common Republican feeling with regard to the party's foreign policy was one of satisfaction. But already in the 1990s, non-interventionists resurfaced, led by Pat Buchanan on the one hand and libertarian Ron Paul on the other. Though they seemed marginal at the time, over the long run, Buchanan in particular was prophetic. President George W. Bush managed to rally most hardline Republican nationalists to his policy of a war on terror combined with the 2003 invasion of Iraq and a freedom agenda for the Middle East. But frustrations in Iraq raised some obvious concerns. And once Bush left office, the GOP again splintered into its most basic divisions. So conservative nationalism, properly understood, has always been a major theme in Republican foreign policy. When the GOP holds the White House, the exact expression of that nationalism has long been determined primarily by the chief executive. Every single Republican president has in fact combined nationalist and global concerns to craft their own unique approach, some more successful than others. Periods out of power have also been significant in permitting conservatives to rethink the appropriate relationship between American nationalism and US foreign policy specifics. For Republican conservatives, the tension between the global and the national is persistent, allowing for various possible balances and combinations. The Trump phenomenon, I think, is best understood as a resurgence of one particular form of conservative American nationalism against the Wilsonian tradition. Trump's public statements over a period of some 30 years prior to his election reveal, if not a fully elaborated ideology, then at least a broad perspective with a fair amount of continuity. And that perspective, although not traditionally conservative, is one of populist American nationalism. Essentially, dating back to the 1980s, Trump's argument was that US allied trading partners had taken advantage of US security guarantees and lopsided commercial arrangements to promote their own economic interests while free riding off the United States. As Trump put it, other countries had not only ripped off, quote unquote, America economically, but lost respect for it in the process. Or as Trump liked to say, they're laughing at us. With regard to US military interventions overseas, Trump tended to support such interventions when they went well and abandoned them when they went badly. He had no objection to high levels of US defense spending per se, describing himself as very hawkish and regularly called for a strong US military. But he did object to an overall pattern of armed interventions overseas that seemed to him endlessly frustrating, inconclusive, and financially unrewarding from an American point of view. As he put it, we don't win anymore defending wealthy nations for nothing. He placed special blame on US political leadership and on the Washington DC policy elite for failing to pursue American economic interests overseas aggressively and intelligently. For the most part, up until 2015, Trump's comments on US foreign policy were framed as complaints 
rather than specific policy recommendations. Still, the particular pattern of his complaints revealed a populist nationalist worldview with some consistency to it. As he put it as early as 1987, with reference to key US allies, why are these nations not paying the United States for the human lives and billions of dollars we are losing to protect their interests? So that's his worldview. Obviously, over the course of the 2016 campaign, this view turned out to have surprising punch, both within the Republican primary and in the general election. And once combined with distinct policy positions on trade, immigration, and an overall anti-establishment persona, he managed to capture the greatest prize of all, the presidency. There have been clear challenges from the beginning. It goes without saying, particularly on personnel. And there has been a great deal of uncertainty from the beginning over what the specific policies would be, in some cases from day to day. But in reality, the policies that he's followed have been something of a hybrid between those three tendencies I first laid out, non-interventionist, hardline unilateralist, and conservative internationalist. And there are several reasons for that mixture, partly having to do with Trump's advisors and partly having to do with the president himself. I suggest, therefore, that there is a kind of Trump doctrine. And I argue that it has an overall shape in the form of four distinct sets of pressure campaigns. And this is very distinct to him. It's hard to see that any other Republican or Democratic president would have followed this particular set of policies. He does not exempt allies from pressure. He pressures both allies and adversaries. He also doesn't ex exempt countries from economic pressure, which is something we haven't seen for some time. So at the risk of sounding like a political scientist, you could imagine it as a two-by-two two grid. <laughs> he pressures both allies and adversaries. He pressures on issues both economic and security related. So allow me to go through the four categories. First of all, he pressures adversaries on security issues. There is a, there is a pressure campaign against China, against North Korea, against Iran, against ISIS, against the Taliban, and so on. So he turns up the pressure on these adversaries. More about that in a moment. That's something that probably would have happened in a somewhat different way, but would have happened under a different Republican president, and maybe even under, under certain Democratic presidents. Some of the other campaigns are more unusual. Second category, he pressures allies on security issues. Specifically, he pushes allies, sometimes very bluntly, to increase their own defense spending. Japan, Europe, particularly Germany, Gulf states. Uh, he's very outspoken in trying to push for increased allied burden sharing on defense. Third, he pressures adversaries on economic issues. And of course, the biggest case of all by far is the People's Republic of China with a tariff campaign along with related matters. This, I think, probably would not have happened under a different president. Fourth, he pressures allies on economic issues. Uh, Canada, Mexico, the European Union, Japan, and South Korea. Um, this probably also would not have happened under a different president. So this is a distinct set of pressure campaigns that are in combination, unique to Trump, but they do have their roots in a certain type of American nationalism. Now, there's plenty to say, and I hope we discuss this more in Q&A, about the advantages and disadvantages of every one of those campaigns. Um, his MO overall can be described as an effort, at least an effort, at escalation dominance. In other words, he escalates the pressure in every one of those cases, but at the same time, and this is also very distinct to him, leaves open the possibility for negotiations without very many preconditions. He's willing to talk to just about anybody. That is also unusual. <laughs> and so the willingness to both escalate up the ladder and then de-escalate down the ladder, sometimes in ways that are quite dramatic or unpredictable or unconventional, is very distinct to him. And of course, I used the word unpredictable. Uh, this is exactly why I think so many are unnerved by this process. And when I say unnerved, I mean inside the United States, outside the United States. He reserves the right to make the decision day by day. So there's no denying that Trump is unpredictable. So when we talk about the Trump doctrine, let's just clarify that right up front. He is unpredictable. So when I say that there is a Trump doctrine, in my opinion, I'm not denying that he's unpredictable. In fact, I think that that's part of the Trump doctrine. But that's a different thing from saying that it's just like throwing darts at a board or completely random. 
there is, as I've suggested, a kind of worldview or a set of assumptions behind it that another president might not have followed. Uh, in that sense, I do believe there is, a, there is a Trump doctrine. And one of the other points worth making is that each of these pressure campaigns, when they go up, when they go down, you find that in the end, um, if you turn the volume down, which is very hard to do in our current political system, you realize that there's really no hard evidence that he's determined to dismantle every single U.S. commitment overseas. Some of them, he determines, are not in the U.S. interest. Others, he decides to maintain or even bolster. He doesn't seem to start from the premise, as so many in Washington do, that the liberal rules-based order is the starting point for U.S. foreign policy. At the same time, there's actually no evidence that he's hell-bent on dismantling that order. It is simply not his primary reference point one way or the other. It seems to me he's trying to carve out what he views as relative American gains in the international system on security and economic matters relating to both allies and adversaries. It is a kind of portfolio reassessment of the American international set of commitments. And it is not predetermined how this ends. In fact, I'm not even convinced that he himself knows how it will end. I believe he's reserving the right to make these decisions day by day. He's renegotiating a set of commitments. And it is possible that many of those commitments will survive his tenure, including core elements of US forward presence, such as NATO, along with the core alliances with Japan, South Korea, and so on. Now, the other striking factor is that this presidency has produced a continual stream of sweeping, but I would say misinformed analysis regarding the internal state of the Republican Party. Among journalistic, academic, and political commentators today, the condition of opinion within the Republican Party regarding foreign policy issues is regularly misunderstood. Here are several prevalent mistaken assumptions that have circulated since November 2016. First, among Republican voters, support for American foreign policy activism is entirely dead. Second, Republicans en masse are now pro-Putin. Third, the GOP base overwhelmingly opposes free trade. Fourth, Republicans are deeply divided over President Trump's foreign policy. Fifth, Trump's foreign policy views are not representative of the median voter. And finally, sixth, Trump has revolutionized Republican foreign policy opinion. What I find in the book, and I devote some time to discussing this, is that a closer look at public opinion polling, resulting from organizations such as Gallup, the Pew Center, and the Chicago Council over the past few years, reveal a much more nuanced picture often directly contradictory to the above myths. I won't go into too much detail on those, but I hope we can discuss them. I'll just say that the great majority of Republican voters, according to these polls, have no affection for Putin's Russia, nor is the base of the GOP overwhelmingly hostile toward free trade. Rather, there is a deep and longstanding division among Republican voters over the relative merits of free trade agreements. And after all, a certain ambivalence toward economic globalization military intervention, alliance commitments, and U.S. foreign policy activism is prevalent among American voters writ large, including Republicans, now as in the past. So Trump's particular formulations in response to this are, of course, new. But neither internal Republican divisions over important foreign policy issues, nor the presence of an intense American nationalism, are really anything new when it comes to the Republican Party. At the end of the day, according to these same polls, the president retains the support of the overwhelming majority of Republicans for his foreign policy overall. Whether Trump has revolutionized U.S. foreign policy remains a matter of intense debate. Every president has the ability to reshape America's foreign relations to some extent and his own party's projected image in profound and sometimes unexpected ways. But on the question of whether Trump has radically reshaped Republican voter opinion on foreign policy issues, Altogether, the polls over the last few years tell an interesting, perhaps counterintuitive story. He actually has not. Viewed over the longer term, however, say by comparison with the New Deal era, there really has been a profound shift in the composition of the Republican Party toward political populism, cultural conservatism, and white working class voters. And again, Trump is not so much the cause of this trend as an effect. What Trump has done to an unusual extent is to bring the policy preferences of newly empowered populist supporters into tension 
with orthodox conservatives on selected key issues. For now, he retains the support of the vast majority of Republican voters, whether traditionally conservative or populist. But because certain internal party differences over foreign policy, immigration, trade, and domestic economic issues predate his candidacy and have now been brought into the open, these divisions will likely outlast him as well. The long-term future of conservative foreign policy, therefore, will involve striking effective and appropriate balances between non-interventionist, conservative internationalist, and hardline concerns. The specific character and substance of how this is done will be up to future conservative leaders. Donald Trump has cracked existing orthodoxies and opened up previously latent foreign policy options. But his ability to do so indicates that he acts on structural forces bigger than he is and therefore likely to persist. Or to put it another way, whether in one form or another, conservative nationalism is here to stay. Thank you. Thank you so much, Colin. Uh, we've got about, uh, about 25 minutes or so uh, for a Q&A from the audience. So uh, I have a question or two in mind myself, but I think it's only fair we let the audience have the first crack. Um, yes, I see my colleague Brett Schaefer sitting here, right, um, hiding, hiding behind the pillar for the uh, gentleman with the microphone. Come on down right there. Uh, thank you. Uh, Brett Schaefer, I work at the Heritage Foundation. Um, I, uh, just a question earlier on, you, you identified the three different political or international strains on, in conservatism, the isolationism, the uh, sort of unilateral, strong unilateralist, and then a conservative internationalism that was more restrained, I think. You, you identified that they wanted to have an alliance with France and Britain, but not to have any overseas troop presence necessarily. Um, and I think that's correct. I just, you can correct me if, you, uh, if that's incorrect. But I was wondering, uh, more recently, uh, the neoconservative um, aspect of this. Is this a new aspect of conservative internationalism? Or is it an extension or a modification of the third category? Um, as you know, the neoconservatives, in many cases, were former Democrats that came to the Republican Party. And so I'm just curious on how you fit them into the overall um, uh, construct that you outlined. Can you hear me in the back? Um, yeah, that's a great question. So I think um, I would say that there's a few things noting about neoconservatism and foreign policy. The first generation, to begin with, neoconservatism initially was about domestic issues. It was a reaction to great society uh, overkill on welfare issues. So that's where neoconservatism got its start. As it was extended into foreign policy, people like Irving Kristol made a case that was very hard-nosed on U.S. foreign policy. They did not like any sense of defeatism in relation to the Vietnam War or anti-communist efforts. Uh, they were staunch, they were sort of staunch anti-communist cold warriors. However, there was a kind of realism to the way those early neoconservatives spoke about foreign policy. Crystal's a good example. He, Irving Crystal, argued that the U.S. would have to get rid of some of its notions of um, ambivalence about exercising its power internationally and, and act in a more hard-nosed way. That was actually his argument. And then, of course, Gene Kirkpatrick famously argued that the U.S. under Carter had undercut itself by emphasizing the possibility for liberalization in regimes where really the main alternative to the existing order was something radical and anti-American. Right? So in cases like Iran and Nicaragua. Her argument was, therefore, that what uh, should be done is to back anti-communist allies. Sort of hold your nose and, and do it. And that's, of course, exactly what Reagan did. Uh, Reagan, people sometimes forget, when he initially came into power, he's associated with democracy promotion, and rightly so. I think that was his conviction. But he was also willing to back allies that were anti-communist, whether or not they were democratic. That was his instinct, uh, well into his second term, including in places like the Philippines. So Reagan was also fairly tough-minded in relation to, to those challenges. Um, over the course of the Reagan years, I think there was a shift, particularly in the second term. And this was a positive shift in the sense that you did have cases like the Philippines and notable cases in Latin America where the opportunity finally did present itself for, for democratic forces that were strong enough uh, that were pro-American, were friendly, and were viable, which meant that at key points, Reagan was able to turn and say, okay, well, let's 
In that case, let's turn against some of our traditional allies and, and encourage pro-democracy forces. But notice that in those cases, he was shrewd enough and careful enough to do it in such a way that it wasn't going to empower anti-American radicals. Okay, so that was a success story. I think what happened in the 1990s is that some uh, foreign policy experts in both parties began to misread the re lessons of the Cold War, right? So we had a terrific outcome, unexpected and wonderful from an American point of view, which was that Eastern Europe, for the most part, with rare exceptions, actually experienced peaceful democratic change. Then we thought that we could do that everywhere else, right? But there's a problem with that, which is, for example, Iraq is not Poland. So you're talking about, in some parts of the world, countries where there are regimes where there just isn't a viable liberal democratic alternative, where your main choices are between different autocratic forces. Some are more hostile to the United States, some less so. So I think we misread the end of the Cold War in important ways, and that was a bipartisan trend, a bipartisan trend. So there was still disagreement, by the way, among different neoconservatives. Charles Krauthammer actually continued to make arguments that sounded a little more like the early neoconservatives, the Irving Crystals, the Gene Kirkpatricks. He tended to be more skeptical of the possibilities for positive change in cases like uh, the Middle East because he was consistently tough-minded about these cases. But you also had a new version of neoconservatism, which was more purely optimistic. I mean, I think in the, I think in the best intention sense, but more purely optimistic, almost in a Wilsonian sense, that the US both can and should topple dictators worldwide, right? And we don't need to go over the cases, because we all know them. But as it turns out, it's not so easy. It's not so easy. And so I think what we saw finally in 2015, 2016 was, for all of his undoubted flaws, a Republican candidate who actually said, um, this isn't working very well. These, these repeated efforts at regime change in the greater Muslim world actually haven't worked very well. And I do believe that at least for a significant percentage of Republican voters, that resonated, particularly because Trump was able to combine it, unlike Rand Paul or Ron Paul, with what sounded like a more tough-minded approach on counterterrorism, defense spending, and so on. He wasn't coming across as just a pure dove, far from it. I mean, he was very bloody-minded on, on terrorism, if you recall. But he, he said explicitly, I don't think these experiments have turned out so well. He said it very forcefully and bluntly. But I think when he said it, there were a lot of people at home watching their TV sets who were grassroots conservatives nodding their head and saying, you know what, I think he has a point. Uh, yes, let's um, turn to the lady in the back row, and then we'll go to my boss over here. Hi, thank you so much for your great talk. Um, it's an open secret that there's been a particularly high level of turnover when it comes to foreign service officers under this administration. Um, a lot of ambassadorships remain empty. Um, morale at the State Department in the 2018 survey was at an all-time low. How do you think this... Um, particular relationship when it comes to personnel has played into the Trump doctrine um, and how it's influenced kind of overarching foreign policy? So one of, the, one of the main challenges from the beginning, when Trump was making these arguments during the primary, normally any viable or successful candidate from either party is going to be able to enter into office with, you know, an extensive cadre of people who share roughly the same views over a long period of time and are on the record having those views. Um, in the case of Donald Trump, you really cannot point to an extensive cadre of pre-2016 Republican foreign policy experts who you would have said are Trumpists. It did not exist. I mean, that's just unusual. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. So then, when he wins the whole thing, what do you do next? It's a problem. It's a, ser it's a serious problem from, a, from the point of view of the U.S., national interest in the functioning of our foreign policy system. So he tends to have to rely on people who, uh, for example, might have had more traditionally Republican views, hardline views on a long list of issues. John Bolton, for example, who I very much like and admire, has a record, and you know he means it, <laughs> on Russia, North Korea, Iran, so on down the list. So John Bolton was a top political appointee, a patriot, in some ways very sympathetic to this tradition that I'm talking about, conservative nationalism, but he has hardline views when it comes to US negotiations with those regimes. 
right? President Trump has slightly different views, as we as we know and as I've described. So how do you how do you get a functional, uh, a sort of high functioning system bureaucratically with that arrangement? It's it's tough. It's it just is difficult. Uh, in a way, Trump's doing what presidents always do, uh, which is they cycle. They try to cycle back to core concerns. They try to find people they believe they can work with and and can trust. Um, He's gone through it at an unusually high pace, but, the, but this pattern is not that unusual. Most presidents do end up cycling back or cycling to people that they think they can work with and impl- will implement their wishes. So that, that pattern in itself is actually not unprecedented. Yes, sir. A gentleman right in front here. Uh, do I need to stand or anything like that? Nope. Okay. Um, uh, there seems to be a, a combination out there endorsed by both Donald Trump and, and his organization combining the so-called pro-family and pro-life forces with the nativist and nationalist forces. You, you know, they seem to believe that life in the womb is, is, is precious when it's in the womb, but after it's born, it becomes burdensome that we have to control with costly steel and concrete. My, my question is, if there's such a desire to control the borders and reduce the migration to this country, why is there such opposition to family planning and birth control and targeted to the countries that supply a lot of the poor migrants to uh, to this co- country in the first place, uh, you know, wouldn't that be more uh, co- uh, uh, less costly for the taxpayer than, than the steel and concrete concrete barriers? And if there's such a hatred for abortion, why isn't there more effort placed to change the behavior of those who create careless and forced pregnancies in women and girls? That's that's my question. You know, you know, it seems that life is precious in the womb, but not after it's born. Thank you. I think I think that lies out my outside of my area of expertise, so I'm going to pass on that one. Thank you, Jim. Um, so, Colin, you know I like a lot in the book, and we agree on a lot. And this reminds me of all the conversations that we had uh, out in Colorado, and and um, so my question is actually not with the analysis or with the Trump doctor, which I think agree a lot, a lot, but in, it's kind of the same issue I had out in Colorado, which is the effort at labeling what we're trying to do here, right? So I, I, as I, my sense is, is, you know, trying to make, really argue that what not, that what Trump is doing is really not out of the mainstream of foreign policy period, let alone Republican foreign policy. Um, And trying to fight back at the caricature that uh, a conservative foreign policy is either something reflective of a caricature of a neocon who wants to go and invade every country and an isolationist who wants to, you know, do nothing and have no military. And it's this notion of this kind of prudent, responsible government working in the interests of its people who elected it and put it in office to begin with. And that's just kind of what they're doing. I get all that. And, and so I guess, um, the, the issue I've had is, is do we really need to have a label on that, let alone the label of conservative nationalism? I mean, the origins of the term nationalism goes back to the origin of the state, which of which there were many nation states devolved. The UK was only one, um, and the United and, and the tradition, the political tradition, the United States brought out of that is not that we are a nation state, but they are, we are an exceptional nation state in that this is a state is structured to reflect the interests of the people. The, the state serves the people, whereas in most concepts of the nation state, it was the people are harnessed to serve the state, and so the the term nationalism has always been problematic and in a sense leaking conservative to that. Doesn't that just, again, open up, I think the kind of criticisms we heard from the last gentleman is the state harnessing power to tell everybody else what to do. Why don't we just call it conservative foreign policy? Um, well, it's a good question. This of course is the source of a lot of lively debate today. Um, you know, some people just want to stick with patriotism, uh, love of country, uh, I actually, the more I started thinking about the term nationalism, the more I decided um, I kind of like it <laughs> because, for the following reason. The United States actually is a nation state. Uh, it is a distinct or exceptional nation state, but it is, it is a nation and it is a state. It has borders. It has citizens. There are citizens, I, I can tell you, I mean, I immigrated here, so there are citizens that are American and there are citizens that aren't. So it seems to me like it's not so unreasonable to actually say that, yes, the United States is an idea, and it's an exceptional idea, but, but it's also a place. It's a particular place with, with borders. It's a country with its own citizens who have their own distinct interests, and that's going to affect your foreign policy, your immigration policy, your domestic policy, and so on. And it is not, it is not illegitimate to use 
the phrase nation because, because after all, that's what we are. Uh, so I have no objection to, uh, I have no objection, I, I like the term patriotism as well, naturally, but it seems to me there's a long tradition in Western thought which is benign when it comes to the ver issue of nationalism. There are, of course, vicious and aggressive and authoritarian versions of nationalism too. I wouldn't deny that. I mentioned the 1930s to begin with. There are awful versions of nationalism, but I think the mainstream American version is largely benign and has been integrating and positive for millions of American citizens over centuries. So I don't think we should shy away from it. I think we should actually embrace it and say, this is American nationalism. It has these distinct qualities. They are positive. And frankly, we can't be talked out of using the word because it is viewed in some circles as socially unacceptable. I, I, I see more questions from Heritage staff looming in the background. Um, gentleman seated right back there. Hi, I'm David Azarad with the Heritage Foundation. Seeing that Trump basically did a hostile takeover of the party in terms of the elites didn't want him, that all of the foreign policy wonks, with three exceptions, remain opposed to him. What are the odds of this outliving him in the sense of, say he loses next year or even in four years, what happens after that? Does the Republican and neoconservative and conservative establishment take over, write this off as a bleep and, you know, a departure from the norm? and try to forget about it, seeing that, he, yes, he has support from an awful lot of people, but they have no PhDs, they have no power, they have no institutional affiliation, and the elites have shown that they're quite good at ignoring the views of uh, voters, especially if they're on the right. Yeah, and, and of course, that's one of the, that is exactly one of the questions that motivated me, is trying to think beyond, because, um, one day Trump will no longer be president, and then you ask yourself, what's the future of the Republican Party then? And I think there's a few things to keep in mind. First of all, it really will, I believe it will be wide open. It will be a jump ball in basketball terms. Um, Trump has cracked open certain um, conventions or norms, right? Not always good, but he has cracked them open undeniably, and I don't believe we can just go back. I don't believe we can pretend this never happened. As it turns out, for example, there are a great many grassroots Republicans, although maybe not as many PhDs, who have strong views on issues like trade, right? So I, I, I in fact, am not a fan of trade wars with U.S. allies. But Trump ran on that. He's doing it. He's very tenacious about it. He's looking for renegotiated trading arrangements, and he's going to present a set of them when he runs for re-election next, next year. So if it turns out that the party has moved in a more Rust Belt, blue-collar, working-class direction, that is going to affect your trade policy. And other politicians will, will see what's happened and will adjust accordingly. I don't think we're going to get a Donald Trump again. I don't think we're going to get this exact personality or style. I mean, he's very unusual. Um, he has been a very disruptive force. And in fact, some of his supporters like that about him. But I don't think we can simply go back. I think what's going to happen is, is that you're going to have a wide open debate, maybe more wide open than it's ever been. And then you're going to have people from all these different factions and points of view making their case. I think that, for example, the non-interventionist wing of the party really in some ways feels quite empowered by him. Not because he's done everything they want. I'm talking about, for example, a Rand Paul type here. Not because he's done everything they want, but because they feel like he's opened the door. Now we can make the case, right, for, for, for really a, a more sweeping uh, military drawdown globally, right? I'm not saying that's what we should do. I mean, my, my last chapter is actually recommending not to do that. <laughs> However, that option is out there now. You can't put it back in the box. The box is open. So the Rand Pauls, the libertarians, uh, the non-interventionists will be making their case once Trump is gone, and they may be in a stronger position to do it than before he blew open the vault. I think David wants to come back with a, a quick follow-up there. Do you see him having some sort of an air right now, not temperamentally, but in terms of worldview, if you look at the, in the Senate or somewhere in the government? I wouldn't try to anoint an heir, I'm not, but I do think that it is interesting to see the sheer range of opinion on foreign policy in the Senate, for example, and one of the striking things is that all the people I'm about to mention seem to get along with Trump well, so that's interesting. Lindsey Graham, much more traditional kind of Bush-McCain to this day, right? Because, I mean, conservative internationalist for sure. He is a staunch Trump supporter. Rand Paul, you might have seen his speech very recently. 
uh, libertarian, non-interventionist, likes some of what Trump's done on foreign policy, a staunch Trump supporter. Then you have people that are kind of in the middle. I would point to somebody like a Tom Cotton or a Ted Cruz. Who's, uh, Ted Cruz actually gave a speech here years ago, before the Trump phenomenon began, where he tried to carve out this middle position. He did it right here at Heritage. So there has been this sense, even though it hasn't been well represented among the PhDs, that there is a kind of nationalism which is hardline, pro-defense, hard on terrorists, but at the same time more skeptical of fresh idealistic interventions overseas. You keep your core alliances, but you, you, you're, you sort of keep your powder dry. That is actually a middle option. Middle, literally. It is the middle of the Republican Party, which is why it's odd that it's sometimes described as extreme. It is the middle option among Republicans and conservatives. So I, I, Tom Cotton, to me, is a very, a very interesting uh, individual for that reason. Uh, the gentleman seated right there. Yes, sir. Um, I'm a retired colonel in the Air Force and a former intelligence officer, and I, <clears throat> I admire what he's done. You uh, have uh, mentioned you mentioned earlier today that he has cracked traditional orthodoxies in foreign affairs. Do you think that the uh, way that the wars were conducted, the battlefield record, and the war the war's results in the Middle East and Afghanistan also contributed? Uh, to the increase in the popularity and prominence of the Trump uh, doctrine, as well as other factors that contributed, such as voter and veterans' anger at the political correctness permeating the rules of engagement and political correctness in the Uniform Code of Military Justice, as well as anger at the corporate management versus battlefield leadership mindset of many of our flag officers you think all this contributed to the um, right. voter anger at the way things have been done traditionally as far as foreign policy is concerned? Right. I think there – so, I, look, I, the career military are not a, a monolithic block. You'll find different politics, different foreign policy views. There are, I have had students who fought in Iraq and Afghanistan, some of whom have said, I don't think we should walk away. Others who have said, I don't know why we're there. There is a spectrum of opinion. There really is. I think you're right, however, that there, that there is a widespread frustration uh, among, among people who served as to how it was handled over many years. And you can point to all kinds of uh, turning points or things that have, could have been done differently under different administrations. Um, you know, George, under President George W. Bush, for example, um, I think even people who who see him, as I do, as well-intentioned, an honorable man, would say that the initial invasion was not well-managed. I mean, there were just profound problems in how the occupation planning for post-war stability was handled. I think that's pretty widely recognized now. To his credit, with the surge, 2006-07, he, he pulls it together. He really did. And, and it was a courageous move, and it wasn't popular at the time. But he sort of bought time for a more successful approach. Um, I do think it's fair to say, though, over a decade later, that the bloom is kind of off the rose when it comes to large-scale counterinsurgency, nation-building exercise. I mean, it's not a coincidence that we've now had two presidents, one from each party, Barack Obama and Donald Trump, have this in common. They have both campaigned on nation-building at home. So there's probably a reason for that. At a certain point, I think, you know, we don't want to walk, just simply walk away from these cases. There are real dangers. But, you know, the, the, the voters have spoken, <laughs> and there's... They have some valid concerns about the patterns that they're seeing in these cases. I'm going to take the final question, if I, if I can. I wonder, Colin, if you haven't perhaps slightly exaggerated, maybe for effect, uh, the extent to which there's a difference between the Trump administration's policy towards pressure on allies and the Obama administration's policy of pressure towards allies. Uh, when I think back to the Obama administration, I think of an administration that for large parts of its tenure was rather skeptical about free trade agreements. I think of an administration that canceled missile defense in Eastern Europe. I think of an administration which described the United Kingdom as just another country, in other words, not a particularly significant ally. I think of a president who intervened in Libya, but then embarked on a remarkably seri remarkable series of graceless complaints about unloyal allies who had forced him into this by his own later reckoning, purportedly unwise measure. 
I see an administration that withdrew U.S. heavy armor from Europe for the first time in the post-World War II era. Uh, I also see, of course, in the Obama administration, one that did some things that the Allies liked, uh, the Iran nuclear negotiations, the Paris Climate Change Agreement. But I see these things being undertaken largely in a multilateral context, and the Obama administration actually exerting a significant amount of pressure on allies through people like Bob Gates to up defense spending, for example. Uh, is there not more continuity between the Trump administration's pressure on allies in some areas and the Obama administration's pressure on allies than perhaps you've allowed? Uh, you, yeah, you make a good point. In fact, uh, I think I've made it myself. <laughs> I, I wrote a book on the Obama doctrine where I, I critiqued Trump, uh, excuse me, I, I critiqued Obama for um, in some way sending out the wrong signals. Uh, for example, I just talking to a French. Uh, diplomat the other day who told me sort of quietly that um, from his point of view the real turning point in U.S. foreign policy came during Obama's second term with the, with the failure to enforce the red lines over Syria. That was a shock in some major European capitals um, and they feel like they're seeing more continuity since then. So their concern is, you know, what, what should we expect coming down the road if we have, for example, President Elizabeth Warren? Is there a long-term trend here, right, that goes beyond Trump? Um, it, they are concerned about that. So, yeah, I mean, Obama, in many ways, actually distanced himself from, uh, from U.S. allies on important issues. I do think there is one important difference, though, between Obama and Trump. Uh, not that Trump is, you know, a theorist or philosophical, but there is a difference in the sense that I, I do believe Trump starts from the premise that there is this thing called the United States and that your job as a president is to try to promote its interests in a rough way, to be sure, but that's your job. I think Obama, in a way, started from the premise that he, as Barack Obama, could kind of hover over international differences between different countries, different warring tribes and clans, and bring about a kind of third option or a sort of transcendental uh, accommodation between these parties, and he often spoke that way. That's a different starting point, and it leads you to different policies. I don't think it worked very well. Um, so that's one thing I think that I would point to as a difference between the two of them. All right. Thank you very much, Colin, for joining us here at the Heritage Foundation and speaking on your new book. Thanks again. Thanks.